just before I lead us uh, in the reading of Scripture and in prayer, let me put on uh, my moderator of the session hat. I don't know what one of those looks like, but uh, it says that I am uh, the official representative of both the session and the link uh, to the Presbytery during this interim time. And on uh, Friday, uh, we sent out to the broad email list uh, the call uh, for the congregational meeting for next Sunday at the end of the worship service, in addition to the introduction packet that you got uh, on Thursday. I'm not going to read every word that is in the email, but uh, it is appropriate that we publicly uh, read the essence uh, of the call for the congregational meeting. Since we don't have that many that are formal, uh, it's important to know some of the parameters. The session of University Presbyterian Church of East Orlando, Florida, having been notified by the congregation's pastor search committee, I'm going to leave out the Booker Church Order references I put in there for those of you that wanted to look them up, uh, that they are ready to present their chosen pastoral candidate for the senior pastor role at UPC. So the session hereby calls for a meeting of the congregation for Sunday morning, October 16th, 2022, to be held in the worship center immediately following the 10 a.m. worship service. We're required to announce all of that at least a week ahead of time, which we did on Friday. And we are also required to announce the docket of the congregational meeting. And, uh, and a few other things are in here, so let me just give you some of the highlights. All commuting members of UPC in good and regular standing, but no others are entitled to vote. That's Book of Church Order language. Commuting members uh, are those who have been interviewed and received into membership by UPC session and does not include associate members received by the session as associates, but who keep their home membership uh, in another church. We uh, uh, sometimes have missionaries doing that, people in Christian organizations, uh, military people away from home, college students uh, away from home. Uh, voting on item one of the three items will be by printed ballot, and on all matters, only voters convened in the meeting may vote. No proxy votes. Uh, through another person or electronic votes uh, are allowed. Uh, majority is required to elect. And since uh, if you were here last September when we had fun with the quorum, uh, we announced to you in advance that uh, the one-sixth of the congregation required, I hope we have a whole lot more than that uh, here next Sunday morning, uh, is uh, 66. You can figure the rest out if you multiply 66 by 6. Uh, you can get to the number of the, the membership uh, on paper. Uh, the docket will contain three items. One, to vote on whether to call PCA-ordained Pastor Rick Gilmartin to become the senior pastor of University Presbyterian. And just so you know uh, a little bit about the process, this last week before his name was announced, uh, Central Florida Presbytery's minister and his work committee gave Rick the transfer exam, uh, the first major part of it uh, that is done by that committee on behalf of the Presbytery. And they are... Uh, uh, wholeheartedly uh, presenting him to the Presbytery at the next meeting uh, for receipt into membership uh, if the congregation uh, uh, provides for him the call. Secondly, uh, a representative of the session will give an overview of the terms of call. Uh, that's the second thing the congregation needs to vote on. We won't go into all the details, but that call has been as appropriate uh, negotiated between Rick and the session and the Presbytery's committee has already looked it over to see that it meets 
uh, with uh, the, the standards that Presbytery requires. So a lot of work has gone into being sure nobody's going to say no at the, uh, at the last minute. Um, and Rick is currently a member of the Blue Ridge Presbytery uh, uh, in uh, PCA in Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, where I had to take the licensure exam to become their interim. They didn't even make me do that to become your interim down here. Um, the docket uh, for the meeting has these, those two items. Uh, the second item has a couple of other things that won't go into detail uh, that uh, after, if the congregation approves the terms of call, then the congregation, and we're asking, uh, as is common in, in the Booker Church order, that you designate the active ruling elders and deacons that are present next Sunday morning to be the ones to sign the call on behalf of the congregation. And then normally the session uh, designates its own uh, two commissioners to go to the Presbytery meeting, but in this case, uh, the Booker of Church Order asked that the congregation designate two of the ruling elders. We'll provide you the names of those that can go to Presbytery ahead of time uh, so that that is voted on uh, at that point. And uh, then on the 15th, and I won't go into all the detail, you can read the email, uh, there's the final part of the process where Ministry's Work Committee presents Rick to the Presbytery with call from uh, UPC, if that's what we do, and he uh, undergoes a very brief, because the committee's done a two-hour-plus exam, plus written things, uh, where anybody on the floor of the Presbytery can ask him questions, other members of the Presbytery. Presbytery votes to approve him to be received into membership. Once he's been received into membership, Presbytery votes to ratify the call you send to them by your representatives. And on November 15th, uh, everything is officially done after the fact. Sometime after uh, Rick gets here, there will be a service Presbytery-led to install him. But he is considered uh, the pastor once Presbytery uh, receives him into membership and approves the congregation call. So there are ifs involved in that. A lot of it uh, takes place next Sunday. But that's the, the big, big overview. The final third, third thing is BCO says at that meeting... Uh, we, with, uh, we vote to dismiss, and I added with deep appreciation and heartfelt thankfulness, the Pastoral Search Committee. Uh, when they present their candidate, uh, their long and hard labors uh, come uh, to a conclusion, and they can all take a, a deep sigh and go from there. And those items of business and those only uh, as the announced docket uh, are on the table for the Presbyterian meeting next week. So. That's what's happening after worship next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we read your word, would you minister it to us uh, as we seek to talk about it? Uh, would you give us insight and wisdom, not only as individuals, but as a body, that we might see you more clearly and that others might do the same because we gather and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to read um, Matthew 6, 9 through 15, and then the first four verses of Luke 11, which often aren't read, uh, the shorter uh, place where Jesus also spoke to his disciples uh, about the prayer that they should pray. From Matthew, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of my wife's, Mary Nell's, my wife, Mary Nell's ancestors on her father's side is the British poet. I hope his poems are still in our English literature anthologies, if uh, they still have those uh, in our universities. Uh, the poet Sir Francis Quarles, 1592, her maiden name, died in 1644. He was from Quarles, England. That tells you something about his family. Uh, he had relatives on the 1609 boat to Jamestown. That tells you a little about the American side of the family. I'll read you just uh, a portion of Sir Francis' poem titled Psalm 119, 37, the verse, which in the King James reads this way, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanities, and quicken thou me in thy way. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanities, and quicken thou me in thy ways. Here, just a few stanzas from the poem. How like to threads of flax that touch the flame are my inflamed desires. How like to yielding wax my soul dissolves before these wanton fires. The fire but touched, the flame but felt, like flax I burn, like wax I melt. Oh, how this flesh doth draw my fettered soul to that deceitful fire, and how the eternal law is baffled by the law of my desire. How truly bad, how seeming good are all the laws of flesh and blood. How intricate and nice is man's perplexed way to man's desire. Sometimes upon the ice he slips and sometimes falls into the fire. His progress is extreme and bold or very hot, or very cold. The common food he doth 
sustain his soul-tormenting thoughts withal, his honey in his mouth tonight, and in his heart tomorrow, gall. Tis oftentimes within an hour, both very sweet and very sour. The poem ends with a cry, a prayer to God, to quickly close the window through which lightning-like desires flash into our eyes. Meanwhile, he says, he struggles to block from sight with mere hand before his eyes these things which seem so sweet, but so often bear such bitter fruit. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanities, and quicken thou me in thy way. God's way, which we need to quicken us, is not mere hands blocking our view like the monkeys. Hear no, see no, uh, do no evil, the three monkeys. If you don't know what that is, uh, ask an old person like me. (laughs) But what we need to get God's way, we've sung about and talked about already this morning. We need a far sweeter desire put into our hearts from God to pull us close to Christ Jesus, to see His beauty and His costly love for us. Only a much more powerful affection will expel the substitutes that so easily please us, but turn bitter. You must have something better to let go of what we so easily grab for, which is lesser. Prayer, that's the subject, Jesus' prayer. Prayer is, in one sense, what we desire and cry out for, and our prayer always defines our lives, because what do we desire and cry out for? When our cries are for the near presence of God in Christ, by His Word and Spirit, our Maker begins to shape us towards peace and satisfaction and beauty, the kind that bless not only us, but bless our neighbors too. And if our life is not slowly being defined and redefined by the purified nature of our prayers, we may not, no matter how much we pretend, really be the living before the face of God, quorum Deo, before the face of God. We may instead be spiritually asleep or dead. And as we look together at the prayer that Jesus taught us, I remind you that prayer words from the heart don't flow well from rule books, even from the Bible when we view it as a book of rules or a book of wisdom sayings. And neither do heart prayer words flow well from new or classic devotionals or books on prayer. I'm not saying don't read them. I'm saying use them and evaluate, do they lead you to the sweetness of Jesus? Or are you so proud of your new processes and techniques in prayer and you want to impress everyone else. I can tell you how many waves of prayer techniques I've seen come and go in the last 50 plus years of of my ministry. The words for prayer that Jesus teaches, hear this, are responses to God's presence, to Jesus' presence. The words are formed not from some book, though the Bible is His words, so it's tied in deeply, but they are words of response to the person of God made known by His Spirit, by His Word. 
are seeing anew or for the first time seeing Him or something of His glory and His grace. And with such a heart and mind seeing, our prayers flow again from the grace-given longing given to us that makes us want to have us and His world be transformed to be more like Him. That's what this Lord's Prayer is all about. You've got to read behind it. What, what's the context? What's the reality? Jesus is painting your life context as it's supposed to be remade by God in the recreation through Jesus Christ. And if you take that approach and look to the phrases, it comes out differently. Our Father in heaven, we're responding to someone. To whom? A father who is not simply an earthly father, but beyond all fathers in heaven where His will is already done the way it needs to be done on earth. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our first heading, crying out to a better than any earthly father. That's what we do. We cry out to a better than any earthly father. You may have had a very good one. I stand amazed at my dad as I learned far too late in my 20s all that he'd been through with the man that he became in spite of it all and through it all. And, and wow, a wonderful legacy of heart he has given me. But this one who is beyond any earthly father, we honor his name. Why? Look at these phrases with me if you've got the outline. We honor his name, heading number one, for no one else is so beyond us and yet so close to us. So generous, and yet also so merciful. So just, and yet also so forgiving. And we long, therefore, for His will to be done, flooding the earth with His glory, because that floods it with goodness. So our prayers put us in desperate need of both God's Word, His eternal Son who is the Word, who took on flesh, and His Spirit. Why do I say this? Because so often we're confused about who God is, so we don't know how to pray. Uh, this week I had an appointment in Tampa early in the week. I won't say any more about it because I don't want to speak uh, poorly of the professional I was with. But she told me of her priest at church uh, the week before Hurricane uh, Ian, uh, who asked everyone in the flock to uh, raise their hands and agree with him in prayer, asking God to steer Hurricane Ia, Ian away from Tampa Bay. Now, I understand that prayer. There's nothing wrong with the spirit of that prayer. I am very thankful that Hurricane Ian didn't come up the road through the bay to my house. But as she said that, then she told me that this last Sunday, he had them as a congregation together give thanks for the miracle of turning Ivan away from Tampa Bay. I was, well, I almost revealed more than I wanted to reveal. Uh, I have no desire to be harsh. I appreciate her desire to encourage me about prayer, her speaking of her priest's desire to have his congregation lean on God. But this is what went through my mind. I thought, this is football season. Some coaches are doing well and some are not. And I imagined a rush to the local bishop's office asking for that pastor priest to be transferred uh, to Cape Coral and Fort Myers before next hurricane season. Because if he's that good at turning hurricanes, they want him on their team. And I'm not making fun, except of all of us. I hope you catch that. 
you know, that, I mean, did, did God think that all the wicked people had gathered in Fort Myers and Cape Coral and there weren't any in Tampa? Come with me and let me show you around town in Tampa. Let me show you my heart in Tampa. God's plans and ways are much bigger than that. The Bible tells us God both created and defined and named His creation, and that God also has and continues to intrude into our world by His Son, His Word incarnate, and by His Spirit. And if you have doubts about that, I want you to know you are absolutely welcome here as far as I'm concerned, and I know I can speak from the elders, and because we're all that way sometimes, aren't we? I mean, sometimes we cry out, God, intrude in my world, and then He intrudes in our world, and we say, go away. It was a lot easier. I mean, my life was a lot easier before I became a Christian in the middle of my time at Northwestern, because then I had all the things to deal with I was already dealing with, and I was having to learn how to follow Jesus in a way that I'd never done before. It's not easy. Uh, we're sometimes uh, trying to hide from our own temptations that we want to get away from and needing God's help and crying out, and other times we're actively working hard at hiding from God, and we need to own both of those realities. Uh, I and a friend, some of you old-timers like me with crew will remember these days, uh, that we were sent with a crowd on a bus down from San Bernardino, uh, Crusade's headquarters back then, to Balboa Beach to witness. I thought it was a really curious way of sanctification to send college guys down uh, where the girls wore gownless evening straps, and uh, some of you are awake, uh, and, and we're supposed to somehow focus on sharing Jesus and be sanctified at the same time and not hide like the monkey with our hands in front of our face. But one day we were uh, doing that, a friend of mine and I, and uh, in fact, I think they put a girl with me that day. That was probably wise on their part. Uh, and we were talking to this young woman, and she was very polite, but she cut us off very quickly with, with this response once she knew who we were. Uh, she said, I was raised Unitarian, and Unitarians were taught, were taught to doubt everything. End of conversation. I don't know what possessed me. I think it may have been the Holy Spirit. I said, well, then maybe you ought to doubt Unitarianism, too. And I'm not making fun of her, I'm making fun of all of us. You know, I, I did six and a half years of ministry at MIT. I got a little smarter during that time, though they're still a whole lot smarter in some areas than me. But I learned that it doesn't matter what your discipline, uh, we're all hiding certain things, and we're all trying to make more out of some things than we know they are, whether it's in the sciences or in philosophy or in whatever, because the crucial realities of human nature aren't any different. Crying out to a better than any earthly father, we honor his name for no one else is so beyond and close, so generous and merciful, so just and forgiving. We long for his will to be done, flooding earth with glory and goodness, and yet we live in an age where so many are so caught up creating an individualism, where every individual's desires are the most important thing that it brings us more broken families, focusing on the personal desires of individuals. And we tend to be blinded on how many good fathers there are out there, even as we're training our sons to be weak fathers, discouraging them in every way. I bring this up to you to remind you, our desires are broken, and as Sir Francis' poem reminds us, we need to see something better. 
And Jesus reminds us there's a better than any earthly father. And it's to him we run and cry. If you give yourself, and I plead with you to do this if you were not led this way already in your life, uh, there's a reason why so many people of more languages than any other book in the world love the Bible. It's because it's where you find Jesus. And you might ought to think maybe there's some wisdom there. If more people than any other people read that book and have read that book and it stood the test of time. It doesn't tell you everything. But it can make you feel appropriately bad about yourself. A lot of religious books don't make you feel anything but good about yourself. And yet it can make you feel better about yourself and see significance that no other book in the world will tell, will tell you. And it frustratingly at the same time says you've got to look at your neighbor the same way. Darn it. Just when I got to the good stuff, it makes me deal with... And yet Jesus is the one, isn't he, that has us deal with everybody that way. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And as we each, as we forgive everyone who is indebted, uh, I, I'm, I'm reading from my notes, which actually I think is what I put on your notes, and I forgot to tell you uh, why they are what they are, which some of you figured out and some of you uh, I confused. Um, if you look at the front of the outline, if you got it under two, what I have done where the scriptures are quoted is... Uh, is put in bold and in brackets the words that come out of Luke 11. So if you read just the non-bold words, you get Matthew, and then you can see the differences that are in Luke. But we've read the passage, so I won't take the time to read it all again, and we'll look back at the key words I want us to look at. But heading number two quickly. Dependent we are, slaves to sin and debt, and we see God's eternal word and incarnate Son and find in Him acceptance and life to forgive others. And as Christ gathered people in his forbearing presence, we're protected, transformed into that image of Christ. Uh, and so our prayers define us. We certainly need bread every day or every few days, don't we? 1967, Chicago had 70 inches of snow. I was there. I think they've had one worse year since, 35 inches at one time. Every bus in the Transit Authority was abandoned on the streets of Chicago. And I heard several news reports that interviewed shocked children who discovered for the first times in their lives that bread and milk were not manufactured at the local grocery store because the shelves were empty. And sadly, in a big city like Chicago, a lot of kids have never seen a farm. They've never seen a cow milked. Uh, they've never seen grain and the process of turning it into bread. And this prayer says, remember where what you get comes from? Uh, I thought about the hurricane as I thought it might be barreling into Tampa. Uh, we might find out a lot about that this week, like some of our fellow Floridians have been dealing with. Where, where do we get the stuff we need every day? But we have obligations and debts and debtors, and by someone's standard, we're expected to be forgiving towards them. And this is on the outline uh, on the top of the back um, I just put the words because some of us get confused if we were raised Methodist uh, here, Presbyterian, something else, you know, why trespasses, why debts, why the differences? Well, if you look at this list of four things from the two passages with the Greek words and what they mean in English, 
You got debts, that which is owed or due, obligations. You got trespasses, which are false steps or transgressions. You got sins, which comes from a word like shooting an arrow and missing the mark, missing the target. You got indebtedness, which is the verbal form of owing a moral debt. And all of that, when you put it together, is what forgiveness is all about and what sin is all about. And we can find total acceptance and forgiveness only one place, God's eternal Word and Son who took on flesh and died in our place. And He had no obligation or debt to do so. And in His forbearing presence, we find safety and acceptance and adoption and so much more. We find grace and beauty in life itself. And you know, there's a part of me that every day I still, this is what the Bible teaches us to do, I need to mortify, I need to put to death that wants to rebel against God. And you know how that affects pastors? A lot of pressure in our days to let this side of ourselves live, to tell people that Jesus isn't the only way, not Christianity, not the way we foul things up, but the person of Jesus, to tell people He's not the only way. I mean, there's a part of me that my life a lot of times would be a lot easier, and I can think of dozens of people through the years who would have liked me a lot better, MIT students and faculty that walked down the other side of the Harvard Bridge when they saw me coming toward campus and they were leaving. But the reality is there is no one like Jesus. And anybody that opens their eyes and looks at the world has to understand that. Every other source is powerful, earthly kings, but not forgiving. Every other source puffs somebody up and puts somebody down. Every other source makes community organizers into community disorganizers and pits us against one another. Been going on well in America. And everything we run to besides Jesus is an idol. And Pogo said it right in the cartoon, we have met the enemy and he is us. Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples got his prayer right. And in Luke, and I need to be very quick on this last point so that we can hear the good news of another local type from our PSC. But if you'll take the time to look, and we're not going to do it in any depth at all now, Luke 11, surprise, surprise, flows from Luke 10. And, and what's at the end of Luke 10? Two stories that we've looked at in recent weeks, so we're not going to spend more than a minute on this. It's the story of the scribal lawyer who wanted to know who his neighbor was and was trying to make excuses to narrow who they were, and Jesus told what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then right after that, Jesus is at Lazarus' house with Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha. And remember what happens? Remember the whole, probably, the text doesn't tell us, but it wasn't just Jesus who showed up. It was his apostles and the men and women that supported them and follow them. And Martha says, they need dinner and goes to work. And Mary sits down at the, on the floor at Jesus' feet. And Jesus must have paused, or maybe Martha was bold enough to interrupt and come says, Master, Master, rebuke my sister. She won't work. I've got to get the food ready. Very quickly, in the Good Samaritan, Jesus is the outsider, the Samaritan, the one who set off, except he didn't come from Samaria, he came from heaven. And he was killed for daring to care for the wrong people. He's the one, like John the Baptist, who called the people outside of Jerusalem to repent. And Jesus calls us outside of all of life's inner rings of acceptance and says, 
accept others the way I do. And what, what about Martha? Jesus is telling her that work is good and necessary, but Jesus is saying, not in these words, but very clearly, Martha, Martha, every word I speak is your food. Man does not live by bread alone. And Mary has chosen the better part. And we bring that all together to close in point three. In the presence of Christ Jesus, we delight like Mary in Jesus' every look and every word and are shaped by our outcast Jesus into good Samaritans who spend costly care on neighbors near and far. Micah writes, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy. And we hear a lot about that in social justice talk today. You know what's always left off? Not always, but 90 plus percent of the time. The next sentence, and to walk humbly with your God. Because you don't know what justice is, and you'll use it to screw people up and divide them into groups. If you're not humble before the God of God, you'll get one up on all the people you call unrighteous. And you won't know what mercy and kindness is like if you don't walk humbly with God who shows us what he's like in the person of Jesus and takes away all the lines of ethnicity and race that we'll never get right by ourselves. We'll get into revenge and resentment without the humility that comes before God. Your prayers define reveal your life when you've already seen the glory and the goodness of Jesus. Don't be skeptical and angry. It will hallow you if you just even try. He is so different than anyone. I give the microphone to the PSC with this quick story. I was with a friend in a major European capital less than 10 years ago and uh, met an incredible couple. The husband was one of the first uh, expressly Christian counselors with incredible training in the city deeply respected. His wife became a counselor. They lived around the corner in one of the new suburbs of the city from the newest going mosque in the city. And the wife befriended uh, a grandmother in the mosque who helped her install a new floor so they could build a room big enough to do family counseling. And she was amazed because the woman who hired her got down on her knees and got dirty when the job was too big for one person and she couldn't believe it. And she invited her daughter to the invitation to come and have tea with the Christian counselor woman. And they began to be friends. And this smug pastor and my colleague, uh, when she showed us the books that she gave out, uh, we thought, why is she giving out Janet Oakey novels? So we asked her and she told us, well, if I give Christian books out and they take them back to the mosque, she'll never be allowed to talk to us again. But if I give her novels, you know, it's amazing how much Christian worldview is in some of those novels. And I find then she comes and asks questions. And so friendships began to grow and develop. And the story ends with this. Finally, the husband, who was one of the leaders of the mosque, not the imam, but one of the men leaders, was concerned enough to find out what was going on that he got the wife to get him a dinner invitation at their house. 
And so she asked my friend and I if we would pray for that dinner. And in a newsletter that came after we got back to the States, uh, she told just her supporting praying friends, here's what happened. Uh, As he asked questions and found out that there were churches all over the U.S. and Canada that sent money to them because many missionaries that were in the Far East and Mideast, if they went back home and told they were having marriage problems and family problems, they'd lose supporters. And so they would come to them in Europe as a staying place and this couple would raise the money and pay for their hotel rooms and let them spend a week. And I could go on, but let me just end it. The man from the mosque said, wait a minute. You're telling me that people you don't even know are caring for you so you can care for neighbors that you don't even know. And they send you money from all around the world to do that. And once he got it clarified, these were his words. I'm 95% accurate at least. He said, I am ashamed. I am ashamed. No Muslim would ever do that. No Muslim I know would ever do that. And I'm not being down on Muslims here. I'm telling you his words, his context. He said, who defines neighbors that way? My words. Who loves neighbors that way? And I say to you, it's the one who says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. And when you know me, and my eyes mean more than anybody else's eyes, you end up going and becoming like me. It's just because you look at me. It's not because you're righteous. You just become righteous because you look at me. <laughs> and, and you lean on me, and you know I've already accepted you. So in the words of my friend Steve Brown, you think about that. (laughs) Search committee, please come.